This APTA podcast is brought to you by the McKenzie Method of Mechanical Diagnosis and Therapy. As patients turn to PT first, be on the forefront with a diagnostic process that is logical, efficient, and cost-effective. The McKenzie Method of Mechanical Diagnosis and Therapy puts patients first. Find a course in your area at mckenzieinstituteusa.org. This is an APTA podcast. What motivates us? That's the question Daniel Pink asked in his best-selling book, Drive, and in his 2009 TED Talk, The Puzzle of Motivation. Physical therapist Steve Anderson interviewed Pink at APTA headquarters for his podcast, Profiles in Leadership. In this APTA podcast, we're giving you a taste of that discussion, a conversation that's about which motivational tactics work and when. Here's APTA member Steve Anderson with Daniel Pink. Thank you very much for being here today. It's great to be with you. You know, your TED Talk has 21.6 million views and climbing all the time. So there's no argument that you're charismatic, but what is in that message that people just resonates with people? Well, well I think part of it is, is that the, the ideas in that body of research, you know, that a lot of the motivational mechanisms we have in organizations have been oversold. In particular, the sort of key idea in that body of work the book Drive, which comes from 50 years of behavioral science, which shows that certain kinds of motive, there are certain kinds of motivators we use in organizations. The mainstay motivator is what psychologists call a controlling contingent reward. I like to call it an if-then reward. If you do this, then you get that. If you do this, then you get that. And 50 years of science tells us if-then rewards are great for simple tasks with short time horizons, and they're less great for complex tasks with longer time horizons. I think that people are persuaded because they might have had an intuition about this, um, but the intuition now is backed by a mountain of evidence. So you've said that there's a mismatch between what science knows and what business does. Absolutely. So why are business leaders so slow to catch on to you know, reinforcing this intrinsic drive? I think it's a really good question. I'm really, not, I'm really not sure. We can offer several possible explanations. So basically, if the science says that if-then rewards are good for some things, but not for a lot of things, and remember, a lot of work, physical therapy is not short-term, simple, um, short-term and simple. It requires an enduring relationship, requires constant refreshing of your skills. So a lot of work is, the work that remains is, you have a lot of like sort of the simple routine algorithmic work is being outsourced and automated. Mm -hmm. uh, Leaving people to do tasks that are harder to outsource and automate, which tend by their very nature to be more complex, more creative, more conceptual, and have longer time horizons. And so what we have is a set of motivators that are you know, great for 19th century work, right. decent for 20th century work, and completely outdated for 21st century work. And so the question then becomes, okay, what are the, as you suggest, Steve, yeah. what are these business leaders thinking? And I, I, I'm not sure. I think part of it is, it's complicated. Part of it is that, remember, these if-then rewards do work for certain kinds of tasks. Mm-hmm. So, um, and remember, those tasks actually were the mainstay of what companies did for it used a long to be, time. yeah, exactly. Right. So, so that's one reason, and you know, that's just basic inertia, I guess. The other reason is that re- that short-term, high-stake short-term rewards get activity in the short term. They really do. If you were to say, if you were to offer anybody, I'm going to give you a ten thousand dollar bonus if you do X, Y, or Z in the next week. People are going to move, all right? You're yeah. going to get activity. You're not necessarily going to get 
productivity, you're not necessarily going to get creativity, you're not necessarily going to get good results, but you're going to get movement. And so I think that they get faked out by that. And I guess another reason is, is that, you know, if then rewards are very, they're easy. Mm -hmm. I just say, hey, here's a carrot, go get it. Whereas if I want to foster enduring motivation, what we know from the science of motivation is that enduring motivation depends on paying people well and then fostering a sense of self-direction, the opportunity to learn and grow, and a sense of purpose. And that's really hard to do. So you have suggested that leaders need to get money off the table before they can help employees move toward the engagement in the organization. So since so many are focused on compensation, how do you get there? How do you, what do you do to get money off the table? Well, let's, let's take two steps back and talk about money as a motivator. What the research shows is not that money doesn't matter. I think a lot of people have misinterpreted some of, those, some of this research and some of the popularization of the research to say, oh, money doesn't matter in motivation. That's absolute nonsense. Of course money matters in motivation. Money is extremely important in motivation. Uh, it just matters in a slightly different way. Mm-hmm. That is, so if you, have, if you have people who are working in an organization, they, um, they want to be paid fairly. And if you don't pay people fairly, you are not going to get motivation. Period. It's a threshold motivator and an mm-hmm. urgent threshold motivator. And people assess fairness in two dimensions. They compare themselves to people who are inside the organization who are doing comparable work. And then they compare themselves to comparable people working at comparable operations that aren't them. And if you violate that sense of fairness, you're dead. And so, so that's the first step. The second step is, is, basic, is, is to recalibrate how we think about motivation. There's a, it's a very American notion that if we raise the salience of money, people will perform better. And that's true for some things, but it's not true for everything. And for certain kinds of things, things that require judgment, discernment, creativity, you actually don't, if you want people to step envelopes, pay them per envelope. Get them thinking about how much money they're making per envelope. Hmm. You will get more envelopes stuffed. However, it's a very task oriented. It's Reductive. It's yeah. simple. It's algorithmic. We can write a recipe. You know exactly what you need to do. It's right. routine. However, for more complex creative tasks, you don't want people thinking about the money. What, what, what you want is you want people thinking about the work. And one way to help them think about the work is that they're not on them thinking about the money. So pay people enough, pay people fairly, and fair enough and well enough to, to um, have them focus on the work rather than on the money. You, you know, I, I actually think the beginning step in any compensation system is to hire great people and pay them generously. And you do that, everything else becomes much easier. As you said earlier, the if-then rewards destroy creativity. They can, yeah, sure. So how do you move a culture to embrace the autonomy, the self-mastery, and the purpose? Really, it's difficult if they are entrenched in that other way of doing things. Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, you know, the way that, like in my view, the way that organizations change, particularly big organizations change, is basically change in two ways. One, near-death experience. Yeah. They're about to collapse. They have to do something. The second one is that they change very slowly, bottom-up, through small wins. And the, the way to do that, I think, is for, is for leaders to not to try to do everything at once, but to mm-hmm. do a few small things straight away. If they work, keep doing them. If they don't work, stop doing them. That instead of coming in with this 
you know, master plan. Right. Let's get some consultants. Let's here's our new plan. Let's execute the plan. Let's announce the plan. Let's have a couple of buzzwords attached to it. Maybe a slogan attached to it. Mm -hmm. Let's broadcast it from on high to try to inspire everybody down there. I think the evidence shows those don't work very well. What works better is a leader saying, okay, well, things need to change around here. Let me canvas the organization for the best ideas. Let me canvas the organization for the bright spots where things are working well. And let's try right away some small things that we can implement straight away and see if they work. And again, as I said, if they, if they work, keep doing them. If they don't work, Stop doing that. So what you're describing is very much like a learning organization. Of so course. you try little things. You, if they work, you do more of that. If they don't, you readjust and you do something different. Right, but there's a huge, absolutely, you're, you're right. Unfortunately, there's a huge amount of executive energy and organizational wealth and time devoted to this you know, incredible amount of top-down planning, which the evidence shows isn't that effective. Yeah, sir, are we headed for right-brain leaders to, to lead the companies of the Maybe. future? Maybe, what we want is we want whole-minded leaders. We want people yeah. who can, you know, here's the thing, like in business, you have to make mm. a profit to stay to stay around. Exactly. And yeah. so, so you need people who have those left-brain abilities. The thing is those left-brain abilities are necessary, but they're not sufficient. And so what you really want is someone with a foundation of those um, logical, linear, analytic spreadsheet SAT abilities, mm -hmm. but then on top of that, someone who also has a sense of design thinking, someone who can see around corners, someone who can mm -hmm. synthesize, someone who can move across disciplines, move across industries, who can iterate, who can experiment, who can create new things, who has a good sense of empathy and understanding other people. That's what that's the ideal right there. Yeah. Now, uh, moving a little bit off of business to basketball, but we can use Go. the comparisons. Go. Now, I hear you're an admirer of two NBA coaches, Brad Stevens and Steve Kerr. I so, am. How'd you know that? Well, I just I wow, did a little research. Yeah. So uh, what have they figured out in their approach to winning teams that others haven't seemed to figure out yet? I think there are a couple of things, and those are two somewhat different, different people. I'll tell you two things <laughs> I admire about both of them. Number one, so let's talk about Steve Kerr. First of all, he has great players. <laughs> Coach, that, that helps. Steve, Steve that Kerr, helps. the coach of the, the world champion, NBA champion, uh, Golden, Golden State, State Warriors. Warriors yeah. But if you look at what he actually does, he is incredibly generous with his players. He's not a dictatorial leader. And I don't think you can do that with a team of superstars. And yet what he does is he provides a coherent vision. He provides, if you ever listen to him on the bench, he provides incredible feedback. Mm -hmm. to his players in the moment. They're not doing performance reviews at anal performance reviews on the Golden <laughs> yeah. State Warriors. They're getting fast, frequent, and often very specific and fairly generous feedback. And he's mm -hmm. willing to use things, he's willing to talk about how he admires what people are doing, how he loves players like that. And so here's this guy in this, you know, professional sports is a very macho thing, very macho enterprise. Kerr uses words like love, mm -hmm. um, which I really admire. Stevens is really interesting in the sense that, I mean, if you look at especially last season, Stevens is a very holistic thinker, reads a lot of this research. Yeah. Like Stevens has really embraced the Angela Duckworth work on grid. He's used, actually used some of the drive stuff as well. And but one of the things that I really like about him is that in practices, he will stay, he will practice just as much with the 10th or 11th guy on the team, someone who's probably not gonna get into the game tonight as much time with them 
honing their skills. And last season, what happened, they had a huge set of injuries. And as a consequence, these players further down the bench had to step up, and they were ready. And they were ready. To listen to the entire interview, go to iTunes and find the Profiles and Leadership podcast by Steve Anderson. You can find more APTA podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. This is an APTA podcast.